game said match here comes a comeback just cause you lay low got up slow unsteady good evening everyone why don't we come on in and let's get our evening started wow that was effective <laughs> Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome. It's great to see you here. And it is absolutely wonderful for me to be back in my second home. My name is Nick Sensley, and I am the former chief of police of the town of Truckee. And uh, it has been my pleasure to serve in the community, and it's my pleasure to remain attached to the community. So as I come and I see those who I know and love, and I see the new faces of those whom I have not had a chance to meet. I want to say to all of you, welcome on behalf of my partner and colleague, uh, Jessica Munoz from Ho'ola Napua, and our partners with Awaken and others who have been here. And mostly we want to give thanks to Sierra Bible Church for uh, hosting uh, this gathering. And just, it's a real pleasure to, uh, to be here among you again. I'm going to jump right into talking about our reason for gathering here tonight. How many of you, before being here tonight, are aware of this issue of human trafficking? Just by show of hands. So as I scan the room and talk about human trafficking, or trafficking in persons, or modern-day slavery, I'm not really bringing you a new topic. I mean, I can step through the processes of defining human trafficking, and this is, this is my own definition. After 21 years of combating this issue around the world, I feel like I can take latitude in throwing up my own definitions instead of using those that are out there in the public space. But it is modern-day or contemporary slavery, which many of us, would prefer to prefer to call it instead of human trafficking because sometimes it feels like human trafficking is a safe or politically correct terminology to use for something that is far more egregious. And ultimately, it is an act of abuse and of brutality. And I like to refer to it as an abuse of human dignity. Because if you put it in a context of simply referring to it along the lines of human rights, we tend to think about the law and the legal context and society and issues of social right and wrong. But when we talk about it in the context of human dignity, we are forced to be reminded that there is a person or persons behind this atrocity. And we can never allow ourselves to be separated from that reality that this being, this wonderful being, male, female, young, old, from a full spectrum of society, from the impoverished to those who are in circumstances of social wealth and status, there are no victims who are left outside of the reach of this horrendous crime. It is a crime against a person 
It is an abuse. It is a violation. It is a disregard for human dignity. It is a disregard for the persons who are victimized by this crime. So tonight, as we talk on a variety of topics, and me being given the privilege of opening up this time together with you, I really want that to be at the core of your concern about this problem. Is that this being, this being who I believe to be a created being by a loving God, is being stripped intentionally of a God-given right to dignity, to a life of peace, a life of love, a life of concern among fellow beings. And this atrocity strips and takes all of that away. All to meet the needs of a commercial or personal interest of another. All to meet the desires and the needs of greed, of power, of control, of many multifaceted reasons that come behind this problem. I need you to attach your consciousness to a concern on this level because it's clear that I'm not going to teach you very much new about the manifestation of this problem. I'm not even going to bother trying to try to give you a lesson on human trafficking. Or maybe I'll just step through a couple of things to make sure that we're on the same page as I try to drive home a very simple point. So let's look at the dynamics of this issue. We know that it's a crime that occurs in a variety of environments. So as if you look at this list, domestic servitude, housekeepers, nannies, home care, in debt bondage, is in a multitude of labor situations where persons are brought over and forced into labor under the presumption that they have to pay back a significant debt, which they're never able to pay, is the whole idea. Custodial work, hotels, schools, public and private buildings, prostitution and various forms of sexualized labor, or as it's known as the sex industry, right? On the oceans in various vessels. I know that out in Hawaii, when working with Jessica and her team out there talking to members of the Coast Guard, one of the things that they used to do in Hawaii was they would get these young girls out on these huge uh, yachts, and it would take them just far enough out into international waters so they weren't uh, concerned by any issues of the st state of Hawaii or the U.S. laws that they would be violating. Of course, they were technically violating international laws, but that's another story. Factory, restaurant, agriculture, construction, servile marriage, public begging, and on and on. So let's look at how it works. So when we look at it from sort of the economics of uh, trafficking, as I call it. And the reason why I prefer it to that way, because nowadays the traffickers have so dehumanized, right, coming back to our attachment to the human being that is involved in this, the traffickers have so dehumanized those whom they victimize in this problem 
that they are now referring to them in their com casual conversations as my commodity or as a commodity or in speaking in terms as though they were talking about a product that you can go to a market somewhere and pick up. Not to be disrespectful or crude about it, but in many cases that is the way it happens in going to markets uh, as a part of this crime. So if we look at the sort of economics of it, and this, you'll see why this is important in the next slide, there are certain market factors that occur. And just as you know from your basic classes in economics, there's a demand, there are an enables, enablers to provide what is demanded, creating a supply, and therefore it creates a market, right? So on the demand side, we're talking about sex and labor, plus the enablers, and the enablers, this is where we need to focus here. The enablers occur in our homes, in many cases begin right in the home with the abuse that goes in the home among the most trusted environment that a human being is expected to live in, right? The safety of our home, the safety of our parenting, the safety of extended family, and even to some degree an expectation of a safety created by our neighbors and within the context of our community. So community and just general vulnerabilities that occur just from social economic problems or a variety of uh, circumstances. I work pretty extensively in Romania now. I have a business uh, a company there as well. And Romanians and Bulgarians are among the most trafficked people in, in all of Europe. And to this day, it has become a, a mission of mine to try to figure out the whys behind that. Um, because when you look at Romania as a country, they're doing uh, fairly well as a former Soviet republic. And there are certainly countries in their region that are worse off than Romania whose people are not trafficked as much as the Romanians are. So this whole issue is uh, what are the vulnerability factors? I can name one vulnerability factor. So with the exodus of so many people from certain small regions of the country, they've left the ratio of women to men of seven to one. Little girls, young ladies in an area, seven women to every, seven females to every one male. That's like Predator City, right? I mean, where you don't have daddies, big brothers, looking out for the girls to scare away these guys in already socially econo social economic conditions of depravity, it creates a problem. So that's an example of what I mean by the type of vulnerability that's created within that. And then right here at home, there's certain vulnerabilities that occur within the context of our own familial environments and that we are disconnected from our kids, right? With uh, technology and... Um, all of the social uh, issues that are going on through the social networks and, you know, sending a text to your mother in the kitchen asking for, you know, a glass of water <laughs> instead of getting up and going to the kitchen to get a glass of water. You know, some of you are laughing because you're going, you know, I kind of know that to be a reality, right? <laughs> I mean, and so 
that creates a certain vulnerability, that separation, that lack of communication, that lack of understanding as to what is going on in the day-to-day life of the persons right within our own homes. Again, a vulnerability factor that yields that supply, that so-called human commodity that the traffickers are very good at noticing, very good at picking up on issues of vulnerability. If these guys would apply the skills that they have in immediately spotting and their capacity to exploit vulnerability, if they applied it to something good, they could be world changers. They really could. I mean, I've talked to these guys by the dozens, talked to victims by the hundreds, if not thousands, at this point in my life. And what is applied in this crime against these lives? It's very powerful. So let's put this into the context of community, because that's what we're talking about. So then, if we take the, um, the economics and put it within a structure, it creates an environment for the trafficker. That woman in the middle is an actual convicted trafficker. And it creates a capacity for a network and it creates an environment for more and more victims to be a part of the problem. Isolating a victim, if we look from how the victims are introduced, if we look at the other side, we look at what we talk about with the vulnerability factors from home, from the community, from the support and the justice system, all of that also adds into putting a victim into the system. Thus, you here today, the reason why we felt it so important to reach out to you and to bring you into the discussion around engaging this problem. You see, it's easy to assume that the work of dealing with this problem rests with law enforcement or it rests with the justice system. Did you know that less than 5% of the information that law enforcement or the justice system uses to solve crimes comes from within the justice system itself and from the system. So if that be the case, less than 5% of the information that law enforcement uses to solve crimes comes from internal resources, computers, the data, the fancy analyzing, all that sort of stuff. The question then is, where does the other 95% come from? Comes from you, comes from the community. Does that make sense? Right? And so if the community, let's put it together then, less than 5% internal, which means not very many crimes being solved, 95% of the information and the capacity to solve the problem, the crime problem, where do we really need to be focusing our attention on dealing with this issue? Within the... The question then becomes, how? And what do we do? 
How do we engage around this issue? How do we become a resource to problem-solving process? Well, it begins with what you have done today and what you have done clearly in the past is to make yourself aware that this problem is real. That this problem has the ability and is most likely manifesting itself within your community. Does it happen here in Truckee? Yes. Does it happen in Reno? Yes. Does it happen in just about any city in America? Yes. I had a couple of cases that we were aware of in Truckee, and the way in which they manifested were a bit different and didn't come out as a part of a, a big issue within the, the news or in public releases because these are sensitive issues and they're not necessarily released uh, uh, to the public because of laws and the rights of the uh, victims involved. But it happens. It can happen anywhere. When I travel around the world and across this country, I like to talk to leaders. That's my, uh, one of my favorite audiences is to bring leader, community leaders together so that we can talk. But I often talk to law enforcement leaders in groups and associations. One of the questions that I often pose to them is, how many of you believe that human trafficking is a problem within your community? And usually in the smaller departments or in the more affluent cities, they don't raise their hands. You know, the big city guys, they raise their hand real fast. It's like, <laughs> I'm, I'm there, man, up to my ears. Right. So smaller departments typically don't raise their hands. So I have to break it down for them. I said, so tell me then, um, let's just work with an example of one aspect of it. How many of you have teenage runaways in your community? And of course, everybody raised their hands, right? No community is immune. Everybody's teenage runaways. And so it's driven home. I said, okay, and how many of you within these communities with these teenage runaways are experiencing cases of repeat runaways? You're seeing the same children running away often. Again, the hands go up. Then I asked another question. How many of you have a process in place to understand what is drawing those children back out? Where are they going? And how are they able to sustain themselves for two or three days of being away and away from home? Let alone what happens usually, and there's 85% chance of it, that the third time they run away, they don't come back. The city of Dallas did a, some research of several years ago. And based upon the research and the way that this problem manifested itself within their communities, they found that there is an 85% chance that by the second time the teenage girl runs away, she is going to be sexually exploited. Some guy, usually five to seven years or more, older than her, is going to take advantage of her. Ah, sweetheart, your parents are just so messed up. They don't take care of you. Nobody's going to love you the way I do. Here, let me give you a place to sleep tonight. Let's go get something to eat. I'll take real good care of you. And, you know, maybe even the next day he goes, you know, maybe you need to just go home 
and just see if you can make up with your parents and just make this right. From what he's talked with her about, he already knows that when she gets home, the parents are going to be explosive and be angry. You stayed out overnight. We called the police. And, and so everything that he's prepped her for is now coming out before her. So who's the greatest person in the world for her? He is. So he goes back. So we know now that by the third time this teenage girl runs away, there's an 85% chance that she's going to be commercially sexually exploited, and she's not going to be returning home very easily. Because, well, okay, you can stay here, you, you know, if you want. Goes the story, goes the line. But you you got to pay for it somehow. Well, I don't have a job, and if I get a job, i got to get my parents. Well, there's other ways to make money, and the story goes on, right? Sometimes it doesn't even have to be that complicated. When I was living in Washington, D.C., in Fairfax County, the one of the more affluent counties in uh, Virginia, which is the reason why I had to leave, but uh, they were trafficking the girls right out of the high school. They would let them go home at night, and they were trafficking them right out of the school. I see Dana here. Her eyes are going like, okay, <laughs> you know, <laughs> our school teacher here. Um, they were trafficking right out of school. didn't bother with keeping them away from home at night. They had appointments set up for them immediately after school and on lunch breaks. Over 40 children right there out of one county school were undergoing this network. And when they caught up with the traffickers, one of the lines that I, I always use and remind folks of, these guys had rap sheets that were as long as your arm for gang activity and um, drug trafficking. And these guys are caught pretty cold, and when you get them cold and they know the game is over, they usually talk, right? And when they started talking, say, what happened to the drug game? Drugs are tough, man. I mean, you know, there's a narco on every corner. Trafficking is what the money is. High returns and low risk. I can move these women, these girls, with nobody ever noticing, so they say. High profit, low risk. And I'm ashamed to say that part of the problem is it's still manifesting itself as a high profit, low risk crime. And again, it brings us back to where the solution lies. Within the, your awareness, your engagement somehow on some level, and there are multiple levels we can talk about, makes all the difference in the world. It begins with education. It begins with asking questions about what's going on in the lives of the children within our communities, being in touch with the programs that are happening and where children are hanging out, being concerned about the uh, enforcement response to uh, this problem. Wherever you are, the police department, the prosecutors, the judges are all accountable to your concern. They are all accountable to your concern, but if your concerns are not expressed, then there is no accountability. You need to know, let everyone know that this is a big problem. How is it manifesting in our community? Are we responding to this runaway problem with a more in-depth look into the problem. 
Now, in Truckee, we have sort of a special situation. We have, at least when I was chief of police, we had nearly 50% of our homes were uh, second homes. And there were a lot of um, homes that were maybe being rented out short term. And I don't know what the rules are with regard to Airbnb and Truckee. But if it exists, there's all sorts of potential with regard to people coming within the community and bringing it with them. So, for instance, it's easy enough to stop down in Sacramento and bring a few girls up into uh, the community or stop in Reno and rent houses and come into the community. I'm just telling you about how it could manifest itself, okay? Because we're so used to seeing people in groups. Hey, this is a place where people come to have fun and to enjoy themselves. But what I want to do just in really simplifying what may seem like an overwhelming process, my call to you is simply don't shut yourself down when you have suspicions about what you see. If you see some young ladies, young boys, that are under what appears to be non-parental type control of the persons that they're with, be concerned. You know, and uh, you would be amazed at if in passing or if bumping into someone in a restroom, the simple question is of, how are you doing? Or, you're doing okay? You're doing all right? It's a powerful question. It goes a long way in just having a person unlock. I can't tell you how many victims that I have talked to who always began their sentence with, if only they had, if, they had only, if the policeman had only asked me, when's the last time you had something to eat? If the policeman had asked me, when's the last time you had a good night's rest? If only the... the Social workers had really given me a sense of peace and space with telling my story. The, the if only someone had scenario is the challenge that I ultimately bring before you. You are aware of this problem. And with awareness comes accountability. And with awareness comes a social responsibility that says, I will not stand by and pretend that this problem does not exist around me. It says, I'm going to be concerned about what I see. I'm going to be concerned that this is an issue which our community pays attention to. I'm going to be engaged where I can if there are volunteer opportunities, if there are support opportunities. They can go a long way. I'm always grateful for my uh, dear sister and friend, uh, Bobby Johansson, who really uh, was, I would say, quite the instigator for me even being here today to speak with you about this issue because Bobby was, I tried, I was at a, I was at a space in my career around this issue where I was kind of hiding from it for a while. Uh, you know, I've been doing this for over 21 years around the world. And while I was up here as chief of police, I thought, you know, I'm just kind of tuck away. I'm going to work on some other things. Sure enough, Bobby shows up in the office as scared as ever 
to talk to the chief of police, but just held on to our courage and said, I need to talk to you about this problem, which I know you have experience and expertise on, and we want to get engaged on it in our community. Thus, leading me to ultimately meet her daughter, Jessica Munoz, who is the founder and president of Ho'ola Napua out of Hawaii, who I want to welcome to the stage and have her come up and introduce herself to you and tell you about more about this work. Thank you for being here, everyone. Thanks, Nick. Can you guys hear me okay? <laughs> good, good. Well, good evening. I'm so excited to see so many people here came out on a Monday. I know Mondays are always hard with work, and so I really appreciate it. Um, this is, as Nick said, probably one of the most important things you could be doing tonight, uh, getting educated on this issue. And so I'm excited just to spend the next few minutes talking with you a little bit about in a little bit more detail about what these traffickers look like, some of the healthcare responses to this. Um, my day job is I'm actually a nurse practitioner and I've been in the ER for a very long time. And 10 years ago, uh, for those of you who weren't at church yesterday, um, I started seeing these kids come into the emergency rooms and we weren't screening, identifying, or recognizing them as victims of exploitation. And all of my background is in pediatric trauma, and so I have worked with sex assault, domestic violence, child abuse, sexual abuse, and yet no one had ever told me that American children were one, bought and sold in the United States, but that also it was my job as a healthcare professional to be recognizing and seeing this firsthand. And so as I'm in the emergency room recognizing this issue, I'm wanting to make a phone call and go, okay, who am I supposed to talk to? Who are we supposed to call? And I'm thinking, there's gotta be somebody to call. Yeah, there is nobody to call. And at the time when we would call law enforcement, the response was often, oh yeah, we know her. No, there's nothing you can do. And just, it was very dismissive. And so I thought, okay, well we need to clearly educate more people, one on recognizing, but also like what is the response to this and who's supposed to be involved? And so um, about nine years ago, I started uh, working with the Hawaii Coalition Against Human Trafficking, which essentially was maybe 10 people that would show up. And all they wanted to talk about was labor trafficking. And I'm like, hey, we have this huge issue of our local kids being bought and sold. And they're like, oh no, that doesn't happen here. Okay, I thought this was the Hawaii Coalition Against Human Trafficking. So we did a lot of work with this entity, which now has 50 plus people from all layers of law enforcement, both state, federal, city, uh, we have service providers. And so it's grown into this very incredible multidisciplinary team, but it took us a long time to get there. And Nick was a big part in transforming that response because those 10 people then multiplied and so the response became much stronger. Uh, so for the sake of time, I am going to start by talking, I talk mostly about children because my focus is 100% on children who are being exploited. And so when you think about the different ways that kids are actually bought and sold, um, it can be through prostitution, escort services, survival sex, 
what people call survival sex, uh, pornography, sex tourism. So Hawaii is actually a sex tourism destination, uh, just like Las Vegas would be considered. Um, we have girls who work in massage parlors, who work in strip clubs, and these girls most of the time are under 18 with fake IDs. Um, so I'm really into language and how we talk about this issue. Um, I'm really tired of hearing these women, these young women, especially when we're talking about children. And so I think it's important, especially in light of, I'm sure you've all watched the news and seen the Epstein case, um, and it's been referenced oftentimes as these young women, these uh, child prostitutes, these, oh, he was having sex with a minor. No, that's rape. There's no such thing as a child prostitute. There's no such thing as an underage woman. It's a child. They're under 18. You don't have to prove force, fraud, or coercion. It is against the law for these kids to be involved in this industry. So when you look at, and Nick touched on this, when you look at kind of the ecosystem that exists, you know, it's not that, oh, we just have all these victims, right? Or that we have all these prostituted persons, but you have a pimp, you have a buyer, and you have the supply or the individual that's being bought and sold. We wouldn't have this problem if we didn't have a buyer, right? Right? So we partnered with Arizona State University last year. They came to Hawaii. They have the only Office of Sex Trafficking Research in the country. And we said, okay, let's do some research on what's happening in Hawaii around our buyer market. So this was right before there was a website called Backpage went down. We posted an ad of a young girl for, at first, we were just going to leave it up for 24 hours. So at the time, there was about 58 ads of similar, a similar type of ads um, up on Backpage. Within the first four and a half minutes, we had 10 unique individuals calling and wanting to buy. Within 24 hours, we had 427 unique buyers. When they've done this in Phoenix, LA, and Atlanta, they get maybe 24 to 30 people in 24 hours. So we have a raging sex market in the state of Hawaii, of which that when we left the ad up for over two weeks, when you distill down the statistics, it shows that one in 11 men are looking to buy sex in the state of Hawaii. And what was crazy about it is that 70% of those numbers were 808 buyers. So when we, in Hawaii, I grew up here in Truckee, and when I moved to Hawaii, I thought, okay, this feels very similar, small town mentality. And of course, the first thing was, oh, that's the tourists that come and buy. It's only the tourists. It's a tourist problem. It's not. It's not. And I guarantee you, if you replicate this study in other places because they've done it all over, and you did it in a small town like this, see the same thing. We posted the same ad in Hilo. So Hilo is a really rural community on the Big Island. And even though the population is less, statistically, it was the same. So we, it was eye-opening for us. 
and we were able to get this information on the front page of the Sunday morning paper, the largest red news in the state. People were in uproar and couldn't believe it. So when we think about these pimps, why do you think they do this? You know, people will say, oh, it's just for the money. Yeah, the money's part of it. Power and control. Most kids who are under the age of 24 are controlled by a pimp at some point. They can make up to $10,000 a week per individual. Oftentimes, these guys can have 10, 15 girls in their stable. I mean, that's a pretty good job. You make a lot of money. You don't pay taxes on it most of the time. So if you look up on the screen, over to, when you look to the right, those are actual convicted pimps. You look to the left, and I think most of us would recognize those individuals, right? If you guys don't know, you need to read more. That's Snoop Dogg. How about that gentleman down there on the bottom, on the left? He's, yeah, he is no longer alive. However, there are many more of him out there. But he is by far probably the worst pimp that's ever existed in the history of this world. Um, you can see on the bottom right, R. Kelly, the rapper, involved, very much involved in the sex trafficking trade and industry. So when we think, oh, it's just, you know, the guy who wears the big chain and drives the fancy cars with the spinning wheels, it's not. And it's not just men who pimp. It's also females. And it's not just older people. We have, in Hawaii, we have boys that uh, help recruit and actually start the pimping process right off our school campuses. It's very prevalent and very common. So the typical profile of a buyer it's disproportionately white, middle, upper-class men. They come from a variety of backgrounds. So there was a big study done out of the University of Chicago, which looked at um, kind of this, what these buyers look like. And you will see that they are high-powered executives, pastors, teachers, lawyers, doctors. There's a pediatrician in Hawaii who's known for his involvement in this. Still free, still practicing as a pediatrician. 54% uh, of them are oftentimes married, um, higher than average ed education, and come from a variety of backgrounds. So we're going to watch this video um, because one of the things that I think it's important to understand because we say, okay, so people are buying, but why are they buying? Most of the time, they're buying because it's driven by this addiction to pornography. Pornography is the driver for trafficking. You don't wake up one day and say, I'm going to go out and buy somebody to have sex with. That visualization becomes actualization. So in our in-school education prevention program, we take the risk and we talk to kids about pornography and the addiction. So I want to show you this short media clip. Thank you. 
This is Anna. Wait, wait, don't click to someone else yet because Anna's stuck here on your computer screen. And while you can walk away, her image is stuck on the internet. See, your fantasy is Anna's nightmare. There's a good chance recruiters lured her with flattery. Perhaps they baited her with cash. Maybe they even tranquilized her with date rape drugs. And if Anna's like many others, she stays sedated with alcohol, weed, or coke to numb the pain. Chances are she faces STDs and HIV because she's denied access to protection. We don't know what she's been through because we only see Anna smiling. And they keep showing Anna smiling so that you'll keep watching. See, pornography is integral to human trafficking and prostitution. In nine countries, almost half, 49%, said that pornography was made of them while they were in prostitution. This generation fights sex trafficking more than anyone ever has, and more than anyone ever has, this generation consumes porn. Fighting human trafficking and then watching porn is like protesting a corrupt politician and then donating to his campaign. You browse privately going from Anna to Zoe and back to Anna. Watch your favorite fantasy and then walk away. But Anna's still there, she's stuck there, stuck in this life because you click. Each click, each link, each URL visit and play button, this is the currency of porn, this is the price of Anna's life. The $100 billion pornography industry is fueling the appetite for children as well. Teenage girls now make up the biggest slice of viewable porn, which by definition is considered trafficking. The demand for porn fuels the trafficking industry and you can take away that demand. You can cut the cord on this machine. You can bankrupt the system. You can empty the pimp's pockets. You can free Anna by simply refusing to click. Thinks it's so interesting some of the responses we get from the kids after showing this video but I think they get a much better idea that it's not just a click that there is a human being behind that image and then that person is being victimized Let's see. okay so when you look at this list I'm not going to read through all of it, so just scan through it. When you read this list, who do you think is at risk for this to happen to them? Anyone? I've worked with kids who literally grew up in Section 8 housing to kids who go to the most prestigious private school west of the Rockies, which happens to be located in Honolulu, called Punahou, which costs 30 grand a year to send your child to, it knows no boundaries. Any youth, kids from any background, kids who have a high risk or a history of abuse and violence, who are houseless, who run away, as Nick mentioned. So I think it's important to understand that just because you come from a certain background that you think, oh, I've set up all those protective factors, all it takes is some guy gets into their life, says, wow, you look so pretty on your Instagram photo. You should be a model. Hey, I want to take some pictures of you. And it can go downhill so fast. So I want to show you this video. It was um, actually made in Michigan. But the message of this video is one that I believe transcends wherever you live. And it really does paint the story of um, this issue we have around kids going missing and how that is directly tied into exploitation.
You just take a seat. All right. Thank you so much for coming in. I'm Mary, by the way. I'm Mary tonight. Tonight, nice to nice meet you. Nice to meet you. Don't mind the giant microphone above your head? I'll try not to. <laughs> there are three photos in front of you. If you could just pick one, it doesn't really matter which one it is, and show that one to us. All right. Could you describe her to us? She looks youthful. I feel like this is one of those situations where if I say he's 23, then he's actually gonna be 16. <laughs> Hispanic, maybe not full, but part. Similar to me, actually. Well, I mean, she's young, so probably has a lot of things to look forward to. I would describe him as friendly. She looks, um, I don't know, happy. She doesn't look shy, but confident. Anything she puts her mind to, she could achieve. We actually have his story, if you could read that out loud to us. Okay, Marcus. I grew up really close to my parents. Adriana. I grew up with my brother and sister. Amy. I remember watching the Olympics on TV when I was five and being totally in awe of the sprinters. I was the middle child and easily the quietest. I felt like no one ever saw me or cared. Dad was too drunk to keep a job and he never even saw me unless I was in his way. Mom worked two jobs to make sure we had food for every meal, so she was never here to know when he would hit us. One day when I went to the mall, like I like to do to be out of the house, a man came up to me and told me I was beautiful and asked me on a date. On our first date, he drove me around in his car and said we could eat whatever I wanted. Every time we were together, he bought me something new. Tom really cared about me, and Tom really made me feel special. I was in love with him. After only going out for three weeks, Tom offered me a way out of my home, asked me to move in with him. So when he asked me to have sex with him, I did. He would put his hand over my face until I couldn't breathe. Tom had friends over pretty regularly, and I could tell that some of his friends were into me. So I kept my door locked and hoped that no one would bother me. After a few nights of crashing there, he said that I still owed him for letting me stay at his place. He said he had a friend who wanted to spend an hour with me. He told me I might have to do some stuff, but not to worry about it. It's not a big deal. When I didn't want to, he slapped me and said no one ever cared about me like he did. But I didn't know what else to do because I needed a place to stay. His friends forced themselves on me and took turns while he watched. One by one, they come down to the basement telling me how pretty I am. When they're on top of me, I just close my eyes and pretend I'm running. I'm exhausted and I don't know what to do. My name is Adriana, I'm 16 years old. My name is Marcus, I'm 14 years old. My name is Amy, I'm 12 years old. I live in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I live in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I live in Grand Rapids, Michigan. That was very different than what I thought. Especially because like being a girl and Imagining like if that was me like that's I don't even know I can't even imagine what that would be like she deserves to be a kid Just like what she is in this picture it being so close to home is Something that makes me want to jump out of this chair I wouldn't think that Grand Rapids is a place where anything like this would ever happen Because you don't want it to happen to anybody and you really don't want it to happen to people that live where you live Thank you for sharing her story with us. I'd like to show you something if you wouldn't mind taking her picture and following me to the gym. Oh, wow. 
expected uh, something certainly a lot smaller. Bar graphs and numbers and but this is these are actual people. I don't know in in like my world in my bubble or whatever we don't talk about this it's not something you think about. You know what we see is only on the surface. I mean looking at this sex trafficking doesn't have any discrimination that's for sure. Ages, genders, can affect anybody. It hits you right in your heart, your gut, your stomach. It's like, wow. Now it's like I feel like I have this weight of responsibility to see how I can help. Changes through greater awareness and making people realize that this does happen here and will continue to happen until we decide to make it stop. In the state of Hawaii, we have about 200 kids that run away every single month. Most of them um, are multiple runaways, as uh, Nick had talked about earlier. And the sad thing is, is that uh, very few of them are actually recovered. Um, so we have a significant runaway problem um, in our state. So there's different pathways that kids can end up exploited. We've talked about the pimps and, uh, you know, the person outside of the family nucleus. But we actually work with a lot of kids who are first trafficked and exploited by their families, um, oftentimes for drug money, for rent money. And so, um, you know, we face a significant challenge when it's family, um, especially when our girls... Um, ever want to consider testifying against the, the trafficker, the pimp who was outside the home, one of the first things they'll say to us is, well, how can I testify against him when my first pimp and trafficker was my dad? So um, Nick mentioned um, a little bit about this, um, the fact that you know when these kids are out on the street, they're extremely vulnerable. And the high likelihood of them entering into a situation of trafficking or exploitation, surely out of survival, um, is really, really likely. So uh, when I first started doing this work, it was so interesting to me um, how in healthcare alone, we did not have any understanding of this issue. And the reality is that almost 90% of victims have some form of an encounter with a healthcare provider while they are being exploited. And it takes almost nine times of seeing that healthcare provider before they're actually asked about situations of exploitation. The majority of these individuals end up in an emergency room or in urgent care. And so it's really important that not just healthcare professionals, such as the clinical people, but also the people who check people in to be seen are taught and trained because oftentimes it's just these subtle hints that will actually show that this individual is in a really tough situation. There was a girl that we worked with who had um, been going to her pediatrician for about 10 years, she was 16, and that whole time, her father was exploiting her, and it was never, ever picked up. Did her regular checkups, her yearly exams, never picked up. So when we, um, another important thing to recognize um, with the way traffickers work, 
Um, they're very much into branding or ownership, right? You think of ca cattle branding, right? That thing that you own something. So oftentimes these pimps and these traffickers will um, actually brand their girls um, or boys. Their girls with, um, you know, it can be their name, their street name. Um, up there um, on the far right corner, that's the cowboy pimp creed. And there was a guy in Texas who tattooed all of his girls uh, with the same thing. And so, of course, when he was uh, apprehended, could find out who his victims were because they were all tattooed with the same thing. Um, we have pimps that actually now do vaginal branding, especially on the young, young girls um, when it's their first time out. Um, and then we're also seeing barcodes and things like that. So and it's pretty degrading. Um, there we go. What do you guys notice about this picture? It's the same girl, right? Notice the color of her skin. Notice how tired she looks. Same girl, same police department. And you think, okay, that's one year. What did we miss? And so that's obvious, right? The trauma that's on the outside is obvious. But what you don't see is what's happening in here, which is even more severe than what's happening to the outside. So when we think about trauma, which is such a you know, fancy word in this day and age, youth who have chronic trauma truly believe that there aren't adults around them that will protect them. And so this is what makes it very challenging in addressing and working with this population. Um, I'm actually going to skip over that for a second. Um, so there was a study done um, by Kaiser, and it looked at a bunch of adults, and it looked at their adverse child effects or adverse child events. Um, and so it shows that people who suffer significant trauma as children have high risk for multiple public health or chronic health issues, things like increased depression, suicide, alcoholism, addiction, heart disease. And so when they further gone on and studied this, that chronic inflammation that happens in your body when you've gone through significant stressors actually gets in and changes your neurobiology and it changes your DNA. And the way that your DNA replicates, it's, it's it's off and it changes. And so when we think about trafficking and we say, okay, there's all these elements to it, but it's a significant public health concern, especially with how many individuals, because now the conversation is much more elevated, are being found to have been exploited. And so when you have, um, you can see that picture of the brain um, up here on the uh, bottom left. The front part of your brain is where all your high-level functioning goes, right? It's where you make decisions. It's, it's how you process things um, in a linear fashion. And so that red part of your brain is what happens when you go, you've heard of fight and flight, right? That thing that makes you want to run. If you saw a bear, you want to run. Maybe you don't, but I would. Um, <laughs> 
So the problem is when you live in a state where that bear is always there and you're chronically stressed and you're chronically scared and you're having all this different abuse coming at you, this part of your brain, that gray part, shuts down. And so you begin processing all of these memories and all of this trauma through the lens of sight, sound, smell. And so it's very challenging when you find one of these individuals and you start wanting to bring them help. That trauma reaction is so severe. The cage around the psyche is so much greater than the cage around the body. And so we get asked a lot. I don't know why this thing, there we go. <clears throat> we get asked, okay, why do these girls stay? Right? If, oh my goodness, they got rescued, we rescued them out, we got them to this safe place, and why do they want to go back? So there's a thing called trauma bonding. And so basically, a pimp uses a mix of love and affection along with anger and violence, and he quickly fluctuates between the two states. He might tell one of his girls he loves her and the next minute slap her across the face. This creates this powerful combination of love and fear, right? Keeps the victim in a state of hypervigilance to the pimp's needs. That bond becomes so strong that they don't have to be physically chained. The pimp's psychological hold is so intense that he's able to control the victim as they're on the street, in a hotel room, at a truck stop, in a house, even if he's not right there. Psychological control is just as powerful as physical control, but it's a lot harder to see. What does this sound like? Domestic violence? So it's very similar. So when people say, okay, why don't they leave? Well. You have a master manipulator who preys on an individual who is searching for love, acceptance, and attachment, who's providing for those basic needs, right? I'm going to give you something to eat. I'm going to put a safe roof over your head. You're brainwashed, restricts their freedom of movement, threatens and invokes fear constantly. And then you have a victim who feels shame and blame and distrust lacks the resources or a safe place to go. We live on an island, so everybody knows everybody. So they know, oh, I'm going to threaten your cousin, your auntie, your uncle, and they know where these individuals are. They don't just threaten, they know. They're very isolated. They have these emotional attachments to an, this individual. They might feel obligated. They have a loss of self-value and worth. And so it's hard to understand, right? But when we think about domestic violence, how many times does it take an individual to leave? Do you know? It's a lot. Yeah. 7, 9, 20. It's a lot of times. And that's an adult. When you're talking about a 12 or 13-year-old child whose brain is not fully formed and developed, it's almost impossible for them to do this on their own. So what's so important around physical, psychological trauma is that disempowerment and disconnection from others 
in order to adjust that, in order to change that, you have to create new connections. And so when we're talking about community and where community comes into play, this is why having strong case management, having strong mentors, having strong individuals that create these healthy relationships are so important. Because in order to break that bond with that trafficker or that perpetrator, you have to have something healthy to bond with instead. And that takes time. It takes time to build that trust. So what do these kids need? You guys all come from a variety of backgrounds, and in a minute you're gonna hear from this amazing group of individuals who are doing this work right here locally. But you can see there is a lot of need. And not one agency, not one case manager can do all this. It takes the community coming around and creating what we call the safety net needed to protect these kids. We can't emphasize enough how you have to get involved in this fight. We have to fight on behalf of these kids. This is who it takes when we talk about a multidisciplinary team. Again, it's not just law enforcement. It's not just the case manager. It's all of these. And I think the one that's even missed up there is the teacher in the school system. You have to address this issue from multiple facets. It can't just be dealing with providing the day-to-day. -day. We have to prevent it. We have to educate. We have to get kids and women and men out of this. But we also have to look at the long term. How do you create the continuum of care that's needed for these kids? And a big piece of what we're doing um, in Hawaii is we're building a residential treatment center for underage girls who've been exploited. And it will be an option for kids from anywhere across the country. Um, you have to be female. Uh, it, between the ages of 11 and 18. And so we're building a 32-bed treatment campus of which these girls will be able to come for a year-long intensive intervention. Um, and then our plan is that they would reintegrate back into the communities wherever it is that they've come from. So we're building, that's why we want to partner and we work with organizations all over the country because we get called all the time for girls that are actually in Hawaii who need to be sent back to other places or vice versa. And so building that collaboration, building that response is key to this work and being successful. And this is, I think, my last closing comment is this, that exploitation thrives in secrecy and shame. And the more connected we are in raising in the level of conversation, the greater our impact is gonna be in decreasing the stigma around this issue across all demographics and socioeconomic sectors. We have to raise the level of this conversation. And the reality is, is now, no one in here can say that they didn't know that it happened. So I'm gonna introduce to you um, our amazing team from Awaken uh, here in Reno, and I'm gonna let them um, share with you what's happening locally and what they're in. Thank you.
Yeah, thank you guys so much for being here and for taking time out of your Mondays to get educated. I love what was just said, that exploitation thrives in secrecy and shame, because that's absolutely what we see. I can't tell you how many of the girls' stories that I hear that they thought nobody saw them. And if nobody sees them, there's no one to help. And so I can tell you how powerful it is when our girls actually find out that the community shows up for them, that they want to get involved, that they're starting to have eyes to see them, that we get to bring light to that darkness. And so every time that we have an event, I know they get excited because community shifting. And like Nick said, that is the key, is that when we become a community that says no more, the game is over. And I love that. My name is Jen, in case I didn't introduce myself. Am I echoey or just to me? Okay, well, <laughs> hope it's okay. I'm with Awaken, I'm one of the co-founders, and we brought a whole team here. And essentially, Awaken started about 11 years ago. About 2011, we got our 501c3, so almost, Melissa and I, 10 years, have been doing this work. And it started really small. We started with just therapy. And from there, we realized how ineffective therapy is when we don't have anything else to provide. You saw the list of needs. The needs are great. And so we started with a professional network of who in the community was actually offering certain services, and they were able to get involved that way. Melissa and I would meet people all the time that wanted to get involved, and we had no idea how to plug them in. And then slowly, people would come in because we needed nurses that had eyes to see the girls differently. We needed social workers now to start identifying kids in our community. Our community, actually, we started a model protocol for our state. And so every child now that goes on the run, when they come back, they go through a checklist. And if they flag either on the high-risk category or the confirmed category, they automatically make a referral. So in Reno, our numbers that are related to social services are really high, and I believe because they're starting to have eyes for the kids. And we're starting to partner with other agencies that also work with children. The medical field, yes, law enforcement, but the schools, counselors, nurses in the schools, they're starting to have eyes, even school police. Some of our best referrals at Awaken have been from school police. And they'll just call one girl as young as 11 years old. School police called, she was at one of our local elementary schools. And he said, hey, this feels off. Will you come talk to one of our students? And so I got to go to the elementary school and I got to meet with a girl in a private room and just share a little bit about who we are. And in doing that, we started a conversation of what she likes and what her hobbies are. And slowly we developed trust enough for her to actually open up that her aunt was the one who was exploiting her. It was familial. She was trafficking her for drugs. And so we see it as young as 11. But if nobody had eyes to see that 11-year-old, if we all believe that it didn't happen in our own community, and it's certainly not to 11 years old, we would have missed it. And so at Awaken, I've worked with as young as 11. That has been the youngest. But currently on our caseload, we have 12 years old, 13, 14, on up to in the 50s. Because age, it spans age. It doesn't matter. If you look for different vulnerabilities, I actually made a uh, PowerPoint, but what's funny is I told Jessica I don't use it. So let me go. Um, if you see the scope of the problem, think about Reno. We're really close to Reno, but here in Truckee is highlighted as well. Nevada is a destination, but so is Truckee. So is Lake Tahoe. And you see the different red areas where prostitution is thriving because we've actually created a market for it. And by doing that, we've said it's legal. So we assume it's safer. We assume the women there are consenting adults. 
but we miss out on the fact that they started at 11 years old when we didn't have eyes for them. And they turned 15, 16, 17. And at 17 and 364 days, we consider them as children, as victims. But the day they turn 18, it shifts in our minds that now they're consenting adults. They're choosing it. They just like sex. All the reasons we give to validate what we're still continuing to do to them. And I say we because it's all of us when we turn a blind eye. It's all of us when we fail to actually provide supportive services that they need. And so as a community, we get to shift that. Hopefully, this study was done by Creighton University, and they scraped the um, ads on Backpage, the same website. And what they found is Nevada has the highest commercial sex market, that we're actually double the next highest state. And it's because with our events, with legalizing it, but what you see with, le it was all illegal ads, but when we legalize it, since we do create that market, the illegal also increases. And people just assume, oh, it's not happening illegally here because it's legal. But that's not true, you saw the map. It's technically not legal in Truckee. It's not legal in Reno or Tahoe, but it happens and it's red in those areas. And so what we see too, if you look at the ads, that if you read different taglines, the buyers actually want younger. They want sexy, they want what is technically a hot topic right now. And so the younger, the better. And they have code words and slang. And Chantel's gonna talk about social media and how that plays into it. But they have different emojis that they even use to say how young they are or to say what they're willing to provide. And so it's gone younger and more underground. One thing at Awaken, our mission, just to go back a little bit, is to increase awareness and education around commercial sexual exploitation. And that's because if we don't know, we can't do anything about it. And so we started off kind of going from church to church, community to community, and really just tapping into what was in store there. How can we encourage people? What did God want for that community? And so through that, we got to watch him stir hearts. Like I said, how we started with just the therapy, it grew. And so one of our main goals was always to provide housing and restoration for the women and the girls that we work with. And in January, we opened our first restorative home, which is amazing. You want to clap for that? That's really exciting. I get excited. This is something we prayed about for years and years, and we thought at the beginning that the safe house was the answer, but it's actually a safe city. And so after seven years of praying into that, we finally opened our first home because I believe we're becoming a safer city and it's time to now be able to house them. And it's a two-year transitional home that the girls get to live in, and they get to work and go to school and start pursuing dreams of their own. And so that's one of the, I would say, one of the most excited aspects of what we do at Awaken. Also, our prevention work. I'll go into a little bit of our services. Prevention's at the top because we honestly believe if we can raise up the next generation to know their worth, to know their value, they're less likely to fall victimized to fall to the tactics that the traffickers use of relationship, of providing, of the debt, I'm gonna buy you a new pair of jeans. Think about the survival sex. When kids run, if they are not met quickly, they might just go back. I can, a story was floating through my head as Jessica was speaking, and it was of a 14-year-old that was essentially dropped off at our drop-in center. We have a drop-in center that's located in the heart of where prostitution and trafficking happen. And essentially, this girl was being abused by her cousin. She was living with her grandma, and her cousin would come over and abuse her at night, and so she ran away, and she was staying at a friend's house. 
Well, his uncle dropped her off at Awaken and just dropped her off in the alley that we're at. And it wasn't minutes later that she was dropped off there because she didn't walk right in that a trafficker from across the street that we know that's staying in the local motel had walked over and had already approached her and had asked her if she had a place to stay. Thankfully, at that exact same time, one of our staff members was walking to her car and saw the man and the, and the young girl talking to each other, and it looked off. And so she went and approached and asked if she was okay, and the girl said no, and so we brought her in and we got to hear her story, and that's when we got to intervene and actually get her help. But I can't imagine what her story would have ended like if one of our staff members hadn't intercepted that conversation because he was so primed to be on the lookout for someone young who looked out of place, who looked like she didn't have anywhere that she was going or knew who she was going to talk to. And so they're primed to see that. And not just at, on 4th Street where the heart of prostitution takes place, but at the bus stations, at the mall, at schools. Because if we think traffickers aren't hanging out at schools where vulnerable kids are, then we're naive again. Traffickers are going to be hanging out where your kids hang out. And I would say social media is going to be the number one place right now, which Chantel will hit on in a little bit. But I believe truly if we can hit the prevention as well as the buyers, we could actually see this end in our time. Ultimately, for us, city transformation is the biggest goal because we all believe that our community can be the safest city that girls can actually hear that they're going to be trafficked to Nevada. We have a ton of events, and so girls are trafficked here every single day of the year, and they could actually hear, hey, I'm so glad I'm going to Reno because I know there's help there. I'm glad that I'm going to Truckee or Tahoe because I hear there's people who really care there, and we can actually be that for them, and, and I believe that we're becoming that as well. And then restoration is our final um, pillar that we call it, and really just going after the heart of what the women need, who's affected, and what does that look like. And so it's the whole span between, we will work with young girls who are just high risk, who are being flagged for multiple runaways, older sexual partners, drugs, um, gang affiliation, whatever that looks like, the high risk category for us for youth. Is a, we will also work with and provide different services. But once they are confirmed, then we work with the minors and the adults semi-separately. Some of the groups overlap, but for the most part, and if it's ever therapeutic, we do separate the two. And we offer mentorship, therapy, group and individual counseling. We offer um, case management, um, talking about getting the schools involved. We meet monthly with the kids and with their entire team, so social workers, school counselors, different school liaisons. I can tell you, Going back to school is really hard for our girls. And we just went back this month, and so you're starting to see the girls that actually really like school and want to stay put, but it's only been a week and a half. And so where it's motivation right now not to run because they're liking school, what happens when their first exam happens? And they maybe don't, they didn't study correctly, and so they fail their exam, or they're not able to do their homework. And kids start to get word of what happened over summer and all of a sudden the rumors are going and the names that they're being called. And school becomes a really unsafe place for a lot of our girls, and so they run back to the streets. Because you know our traffickers there are saying, I will always accept you. You're always welcome here. I know what you've done, and it doesn't matter. You belong here. And so if we don't get the schools on board as well, I would say that's one of the biggest trigger points for our girls, as well as then we need homes. We need more homes for the girls that we work with specifically. Like I said, we opened a home, but it is for 18 and older. 
but the young girls are going right back into group homes or foster care or families that they actually ran from in the first place. And so if we can't then provide a safe place for them to go back, it's another reason why they run. And so it's going to take a whole community response to actually solve this issue. And so one way that you guys can get involved, obviously the mentorship component, I would say to Awaken Our Mentors are our favorite people in the world. They're all ages. The oldest is 86 years old and she loves unconditionally. She opens up her home. She loves the girls to come over and share meals with them. She'll run errands with them. And so that's one area of involvement that you guys can get involved in. We also have a sign-up sheet up there. And so if you guys are interested in receiving our newsletter or getting involved, um, if there is something that you have to offer, we probably have a need for that. And so we would love for you guys to get involved. You guys feeling okay? I've seen a lot of faces just stare at me. Cool. Well, we're going to move on. Um, and it is my absolute honor to introduce the next speaker, Molly. That I've known Molly and I've had the privilege of knowing her for the last five years and to watch her grow, to watch her come to a place with complete courage to share her story tonight for the very first time. You guys, she's an amazing mom. She's an incredible friend. She's an artist. She made jewelry in the back that she handcrafts. Every person in my family got one of her pieces of jewelry last year for Christmas. It's a great gift, and it's beautiful. And she makes it with beauty in mind, knowing that each piece represents our girls as well. Beautiful, unique, handcrafted. And so I'm really excited for you guys to get to hear her tonight. Um, I'm Molly. Um, I was born and raised in Reno, Nevada. <clears throat> my exploitation started when I was just six years old. My stepdad invited me to stay up after my siblings had gone to bed for a special movie night. What started as something that made me feel special turned into a viewing point or turned into viewing porn in which he later asked me to reenact the scenes with him. These special movie nights continued on for years. Over the following years, my siblings and I experienced a lot of abuse. I thought I was going crazy because nobody was coming to help us. My parents would always tell me that nobody would believe me, especially the police. The sad thing is, there were many opportunities for law enforcement and CPS to rescue us. The police were in our house regularly. They knew me and my sibling by name, and out of all of the times they were at my house, only one police officer took the time to sit with me and told me that he understood my situation. He said that he could see what was going on in my house, and he knew it wasn't right, but he also said there was nothing he could do. Eventually, CPS was finally called, but it didn't help. They kept us in the care of my mom and my abusive stepdad. Eventually. My stepdad was arrested for the physical abuse against my sister and I. My parents only had to take parenting classes and we were placed right back with them again. The sexual and physical abuse from my stepdad seemed to grow more and more and I could not understand how we were always placed back in my parents' house. I don't remember anyone ever asking me and my siblings if we wanted to be reunited with my parents. As the violence escalated, so did my anxiety. I still recall being in fourth grade and suffering from anxiety and shame. 
I began picking at my own skin. I had scabs throughout my face and my body. My teacher noticed, but she never asked me any questions about my personal life, and I was terrified to bring it up. At the age of 14, I met my friend Haley. She knew my situation, but did not want her grandma to know, or she wouldn't let her hang out with me. <clears throat> I felt safe being close to Haley, so I would sleep in a ditch nearby her home. In the mornings, Haley would let me come in and borrow her clothes for the day. My mom and stepdad made me a deal that as long as I could bring them home $20 a week, they wouldn't call me in as a runaway. I was regularly ditching school and would sit at city center asking for a dollar to ride the bus, but really I was saving up to pay my parents. Sometimes Haley would give me her lunch money so that I can stay and hang out with her at school. Haley's grandma, grandma eventually caught on to what we were doing and told me I was no, long, no longer allowed over. I started sleeping at parks again when I met a cute boy who paid a lot of attention to me. He invited me to hang out with him in the park and invited me to sleep at his place. I was thankful to be out of the cold and in return, I gave him the only thing I was taught since I was six years old, sex. I found out I was pregnant shortly after and being a pregnant freshman in high school, I decided I needed to go home. My stepdad was still in jail from a previous abuse incident, so I felt safe. I was exploring my options and meeting with an adoption agency when my mom assured me she would help me with my baby so I could still attend school. Nine months later, a six, pounds and six ounce baby girl was placed on my chest and the whole world changed. CPS was automatically called because I was a teen mom. They had me taking parenting classes. Two weeks after my daughter's birth, I came home to all of my stuff outside. The curb was shattered. The curb was shattered. My clothes were all over. Formula was dumped all over the ground. My stepdad had been released from jail and my mom told me and my sister we had to leave because he was staying. CPS came, helped me gather my stuff in a trash bag and we went to live with a foster family. I was a new mom working, still going to school and I was exhausted when I had, when I had saw a friend post a picture of her at the strip club and a huge sack of money. I messaged her, and the next thing I knew, I was 16 and working in the strip clubs. It was not the life I had thought it was going to be. It was not glamorous. I had thought men weren't allowed to touch me, but that was definitely not the case. They could pay the bouncers to do whatever they wanted to me. I was raped and robbed in the back rooms on multiple occasions. Men would pay the club owners to rent me out for a bachelor party when they, where they did whatever they wanted to me. Pimps would come in and collect their cut from the girls at the end of the night, and I used to think that would never be me. Until one night, a girl that I had danced with and thought was a friend invited me to do an extra with her and, and meet a guy at his house. Once I was there, Five guys were waiting for me. They all raped me, 
beat me, tied me up in a garage for days. They began posting photos of me online and told me I had to make $2,500 a week prostituting. The beatings were so bad that I had to check myself into the hospital. I had a broken eye socket, broken ribs, and bruises covering my body. I told the hospital and my foster mom that I had been mugged and jumped. My daughter came in to visit, and she didn't even recognize who I was. This went on for four years when I said enough was enough. My friend had worked with an organization called Awaken. I was in the process of getting to know them when I was riding my bike to the store. An SUV pulled up and a man jumped out and threw me off a bike. He beat me on the side of a busy road and when he left, I knew it was because I was trying to leave and had told my pimp no. Not one single person stopped or called the police, not one. Awaken was able to get me and my daughter a plane ticket to North Carolina where I was able to get away and have a safe place to go to the hospital. The family we stayed with helped care for my daughter and allowed me to really begin healing. After a month, I missed my sister and decided I shouldn't have to be the one to leave the state. He should. I came back to Reno, but my trafficker found me. He sent men who dragged me into an alley and raped me. There were people all around, some homeless men nearby even cheering them on. Others ran, and only one person called 911. For an entire year, I would stay up all night waiting for the sun to come up for me to feel safe to sleep. I had horrible nightmares and flashbacks of the trauma I had endured. I did the hard work in therapy and continue to do EMDR every week. I have been out of the life for almost four years now. I've been able to take college classes, move into a house, and start a business on top of being a mom to two. I can no longer be one of the adults I swear I would never be and look away and not say something. The men who bought me were highly respected businessmen in our community, <clears throat> doctors, business owners, both male and female. And I just want to add, a lot of them were in Truckee. I am begging you to open your eyes, even when it was hard. Put down the judgment and shameful words and glances. We deserve more. Thank you, Molly. So one of the things that I've learned um, in the amount of time I've worked with these guys is not to wear mascara on the bottom. So if you ever attend something else like this, don't wear mascara on the bottom. My name is Chantel Brewer. Um, I am from Reno. I work and live with my kids and my husband in Reno. Um, I'm a career educator. I've worked for Washoe County. I've worked for state charter schools. I've been an educator in Clark County, uh, where I was raised in the school system, where that's where I was first introduced to all of this as a student. And uh, because of my background, I kind of became a peer advocate. And that's just my feisty nature. That's who I have become. I knew Jesus from the time I was seven. He called me super early. And so um, I love that. I love that not just that Molly shared her story, but that each of you are willing to be here to hear it. I love that you guys are part of a community. I love your point of 
that it takes every member in the community. I love that list that you shared of the people that can be involved. And one of the things that from the time I was so young that is also very clear to me is um, how influential peers can be. And um, I think somebody over here is an educator. And I think, you know, as, and maybe more of you, but every one of you is in the community. And um, if these women are adults and being exploited, they're your peers. And um, if you have children, you have the opportunity to raise kids in a way that, um, in an age-appropriate way, that they know that this is an issue. My daughter gave a what for to her teacher who turned off a video very similar to this one, but she stopped it right before it talked about um, that the whole thing that was happening was, was trafficking. It was internet safety. That's what they were talking about. And I love that. And I'll talk about that briefly in just a, a minute to wrap up. But my 14 year old can go into her middle school and she can say this was, that's trafficking. That's my mom works to put a stop to that. And she stood up and she taught her teacher something. And that's just cause, uh, you know, as an educator, I see, I mean, any of you who are around children, you guys can be standing outside of a Seven Eleven and understand the amount of peer pressure. If you're watching two youth standing next to each other, the peer pressure is, is crazy. And part of what we get to do as a church is, follow Jesus, right? He went to the kids. He pulled the kids in. And this is definitely something that is, um, it transcends all age groups and a lot of different demographics. But in, uh, because my job is prevention, my job is to go into the schools. My job is to train educators of what, what to be aware of, to work in the community and say, every single one of you have the opportunity to be a part of of this, this awareness, whether you are at a party with people and they say, uh, they mention it, they, if they mention something in the news, you're talking about Epstein, you know better now. And the more that you uh, choose to learn, the better prepared you are, the more you read about it, the more prepared you are to say, uh, we don't call them underage women. That's not something. You know, I mean, maybe you won't be the cool person at the party after you say that, but, you know, you're a Christian, so welcome to it. You know, I mean, that's just, <laughs> Jesus wasn't popular, I promise you. He was not super popular. Not for the reasons that people want to be popular. But you, sometimes it just takes saying it like it is. It just takes you saying, enough is enough. Molly's story shows us there were so many people, so many points in her story where somebody could have said, the CPS worker could have said, this is beyond just a, an unstable home. Something else needs to happen here. We need better services here. That police officer could have chosen not to throw his hands up and say, there's nothing I can do here. Because he's a man, he's a human, he's a community member, and then he's a police officer. And this is a girl that needed protecting. Her friend, if her friend would have been aware of this as an issue, her friend could have said, it's not just someone sleeping in the, in the park, this is someone who needs help. And teaching that little girl, Haley, you keep telling people, you keep speaking up for your friend until someone listens to you, until someone agrees to do something. Those are the kind of things that we can do in our churches, in our schools, in our work, in our, our parties, wherever we are living our life in our community. Those are the sort of changes that we can, as a community, bring and then I want to touch on uh, the internet safety and the internet factor. We just live in a day and age where that technology is just at our fingertips. And 
the one of the number one ways that exploitation is happening, and this does not just include human trafficking. Sometimes people want to exploit our kids just to have their pictures. They will never have to come in contact with them, but they have this power over these kids because these kids, you know, we go back to this brain. This is not developed, but they really think that they are in a, in a solid relationship with this kid because they've seen his picture when he could be this creepy dude. They have no idea that he's 50 and he stole all those pictures off of someone else's Instagram. And so these girls think that they're genuinely in a relationship online with these predators. And so then they, you know, someday we're going to meet. I just can't right now. And, and it can take a lot of different pathways. But what happens is they, because they don't have all of their reasoner yet, they agree to send a photo that includes their face. And then there's so much shame. And that's the other thing that we need to be teaching our own children. There's no point too far where I'm going to say, sorry, that's enough. I don't love you anymore. Or I can't really, I can't walk with you anymore as your mama because that was just the one thing too far. And I know that sounds crazy, but we actually have to say those words. You have to say that to the kids that are in your life. You have to say that to the young adults, the college students who are in your life. There's no line. There is no line. If we are really following Jesus, there's no line. And that's great. That's the grace, right? That's that mercy and grace. With internet as a community, we can be setting up boundaries. We can be having conversations with our kids because that is, I don't know the statistic. Um, I don't remember it, but the amount of exploitation that's happening through pornography online we saw what that leads to. The amount of exploitation that happens through Instagram, through Snapchat, through uh, there's an app on, on that kids can get called Calculator, and it genuinely looks like a calculator until you push a series uh, password, and there are it's a whole secret stash of photos. It's a whole secret stash of who's coming up with this garbage. I want to meet that guy and help help him out. Right? It's the it's it's ending the demand. But I just think, man, he's brilliant. Let's put it to better use, right? I mean, I, I just let me be his teacher for one year. That's how I feel sometimes. <laughs> just one year. But there's, there are things that we can do. We can set our own phones down and have a face-to-face -face conversation while we're standing in the grocery store line around a kid and ask that question. How are you? They probably won't know how to answer you yet because they don't have face-to-face -face conversations with people. That's old school. But you can set that new standard. You can wait until they actually answer you before moving on. And if they don't answer you, ask them again. They'll think you're weird and awkward, but they'll just be like, dude, this guy in line, he wouldn't stop asking me, how are you doing, until I actually answered him. They love talking about adults and making fun of them. So just choose to be the one that's going to be that guy. I'm very right. I mean, I, I really, I have five teenagers, so I actually one adult, but I super don't. So those tiny little cultural changes are things that we, as wherever you're at in your community, those are definitely things that you guys can be doing. But that biggest piece in, in, because I am such a fan of prevention, this has to be bookended with all the services that they've talked about. But that it has to be bookended with that prevention piece. And that's so simple. It's just, it's deciding to leave these pews, leave these chairs, and go out there and be this same person that you are in here, out there. Going out and having conversations with people and changing. You know, we don't think, we don't think telling pimp jokes is funny. 
that can't be that can't be funny and we stand for what we are saying that we stand for we can't have that clash of culture so those are the, those are just small things that you can do and then with Molly's story think about all those moments Haley's grandmother she's a grandmother but she could have said there's a little girl sleeping in this in the park and I don't want her uh, instead of saying I don't want you near my kid which I mean in her mind she probably thought she was doing what was right but maybe she was really setting a terrible example for her granddaughter. Sorry, Haley's grandma, if you're in this room. <laughs> I'm not sorry. We'll talk later. But <laughs> I'm just kidding. That was not a threat. I was just, I'm an advocate. <laughs> but if you, you know, if you see a situation like that, be that nosy neighbor. Be willing to be so different, to be so counterculture, that kids see you and say, that's my person. That's the person I can come in, I can say anything to because they've already said there's no line. So that's all I got. Anything else I was supposed to cover? All right. Oh, the banquet. Oh, sorry. I, I, I was told that I was supposed to invite you guys all to a really big party we're having. Do you guys like parties? Dinner's included. November 16th, we are hosting our annual banquet. And uh, it's dinner and a silent auction. And it is just our best way to um, get information out to you, to share what we've accomplished for this year with the donations that we've been given, and then give you a projection of, of where we're going for the following year. Um, and if you want more information, we have a, a table in the back with all of that. So November 16th, take out your phones and put it in your phone. Not one of you. You guys already have tickets? Is that what it is? You already have tickets? All right. Thank you guys so much for having us. How are we doing? I have to again say thank you to Molly. All right, so thank you, Molly, all right? Um, there is a validation that Molly gave to uh, tonight in many ways, but one of the areas is this issue of modern-day slavery. I mean, as Molly stepped through her story, I really want you to think back to chattel slavery of this country. When someone ran, what happened? Someone was sent behind them to beat them, to send a message to them. When someone tried to run, maybe they found a little cover somewhere, but just temporary, because I don't want you to be around me, or I don't want to be associated with you. When you try to to get out in a way, there's always consequences. There's constant fear of looking over your shoulder as to who's coming next. So human trafficking really is just safe terminology. But this young lady is a survivor, or as Tammy Batanga would say, she is now a thriver who has moved beyond and up and over the life that was so traumatic for her, and I'm just so proud of you. I am very, very proud of you. Thank you for sharing your story. <laughs> so, um, I have a, a home that I sponsor in uh, Romania, and I, well, two homes actually, and in one home I have uh, 21 young ladies from eight years old to 18 years old. And the stories that we hear and know and the lives of these children is just tremendous. So please, hear 
hear everything that has been said to you today and don't put this under a rock or under a barrel, as it's said in Scripture. And let's, let's be engaged. So I want to take some time for a few moments of uh, Q&A. I want to invite uh, Jess to come back up and wherever we want to, Chantel, and just feel free to ask the questions um, that you have uh, for us. Please come on up here. There's enough room for us all to fit up here. Come up, please, ladies. Join up here. Um, questions, and I think maybe we'll have a mic that maybe we can float about. Is there an extra one, Tim? Okay. 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 Hello. You know, I do have a question. Do we have more than one nurse in the Reno and Sparks with the proper designation to perform the rape exams? Do we have grant funding, more grant funding for that so that they can get the proper designation because I know that, you know, through the Sarah team, we only had one nurse that, so. This is Melissa Holland. <laughs> so we work with the, the hospitals in the Reno community. So at the Tahoe Forest Hospital might have a different answer, but all of the forensic exams go to the Child Advocacy Center. So there is no hospital that has a nurse on staff to do forensic exams, and that's how they have decided to do it. Big issue. I mean, because as was pointed out, many of these young ladies, young men, young boys, uh, young women, end up in the hospitals. And as Jessica said, in their experience, there was, it was an unknown as to how to deal with this, a big issue. Yes. Did you have your hand up over here? Oh, over here uh, to the right. Come in. Um, so we do need to continue to educate the nurses because this is a brutal crime. Yes? Okay, with it being legal in Reno and trafficking being, I guess trafficking isn't legal, but prostitution is legal. I was in the LA or the Las Vegas airport and obviously a pimp with three girls dressed. It was so obvious. Like, what do you do? And do you call the airport police? Do you, I mean, it haunts me still to this day. They were old. They were in their 20s, but still they were, they were, vic they were slaves. And oh. um, who... In any day situation, what do you do to get action quickly, and who do you call? Great question, particularly in an airport. I mean, yes, the bottom line question is go to the airport police and say, listen, I, I've seen this, and this, it's really obvious. Can you at least go up and ask, are these ladies okay? Can you go up and separate them out? Because I'm not going to ask you to approach a very obvious uh, pimp uh, on your own and feel... Uh, and perhaps put yourself in a dangerous situation. Yes, well, I, I understand the fear that's associated with that. But please, do take action. Don't, don't let it go. If you suspect it, you know, as they say, I guess, in particular in airport environment, if you see something, say something. Let it apply to this as well. If you see something, say something. Call the police. Send them afterwards, even if you have to. But don't let it go. In Reno, too, now our airport is a safe place. And so no matter your position in the airport, you're trained on trafficking, on abuse, on different signs to recognize and who to call for help. Excellent. Up here? There's so many. Um, so I'm a counselor at Truckee High School, and you know I've I've had many instances where I've had to call CPS, and you know you hear okay yeah we know about that. Um, 
what do you guys recommend for us to do? Like, what are some resources that we could give these girls that maybe we are suspicious of something, um, but they're being resistant and talking to us? Any thoughts on that? Is it we switch? Okay, sorry, I was snarky and then a Velcro took over. Okay. Um, so understanding that what those kids need is social emotional learning strategies. Like first and foremost, that's that is hundred percent what they're gonna that would be the focus. And then we are just as our human nature, we want to learn, we want to be educated, we want to be part, we want a place to fit. School needs to be that place where these kids fit, in my opinion. That is, if they come from difficult home lives, if it, they come from difficult neighborhoods, if they come from a great neighborhood with a dysfunctional family, that all of that can not be irrelevant, but it, it can be a smaller factor if they know that every day when they come to school, those are their people. That is a safe space for them to be. They know that they're getting the wraparound services and the help that they need. And so being that proactive, creating lunch bunch, you know, days where the kids come in and they have lunch with you, uh, you know, in a small group and they get to talk about things that are real, providing small writing groups where they get to give feedback and they get to be really blunt and honest and, and say, you know, this is really what's happening with me. This is, this is a memory that I have or this is a reoccurring dream I'm having and it's based off of this real life thing that's happening. And then uh, just, you know, being those eyes aware. Every teacher trained is my goal. Every educator in any capacity, school bus driver, everybody trained to say, I'm your people. We are that safe, that safe space. Make it free and easy for the children to speak in the language that they're comfortable with. Don't put boundaries or limitations on how they are allowed to express themselves. If it has to be through the foulest language that you've ever heard, then let it uh, be so. Let it be free. I'm a life coach. And as a life coach, there are certain key questions that we ask to sort of open up. And one of them it is very simple. What's on your mind? Mm -hmm. Right? Or um, to really try to get people to open up with the general question, what, what is it that you're really feeling a need for? Just these questions that open things up to allow them to be able to touch into any area. Chantel, what are the resources you have for schools here? 
So I, those are be really being just developed. So I can actually come out, I, I, as an educator, I've been an educational coach for years. I can come out and I can train, I can do professional development. I have a team of people, a small team of people that can come with me. And uh, we can, so whatever your school district, whatever their um, level of awareness is, we can differentiate it so that you're not just hearing the same thing as well. And so, I think a lot of it is uh, what we can offer is is just how to. As a lot of it is that social emotional learning. Um, do you guys have that in your district here? Do you guys is that something that's taught in all the classrooms? Okay, so really, uh, for me, what I found was uh, social emotional learning is just that idea of um, you have to approach a kid in real relationship. They have a certain level. Uh, it's a, their standards, just like standards-based teaching. Their standards that the students have to go in order. They have to be able to identify their own emotions before you can ask them to go be an advocate for somebody else. So you would start right there. So when they introduced that social-emotional learning strategies, all of that into our, our schools, it was very inaccessible for the teachers. And so that's actually what I can come in and offer. We actually also have a curriculum that is right now geared for fifth and sixth grade. It is an arts and um, ELA integrated with all based on the social emotional learning standards and I can come in and teach you how to use that and it's a curriculum that we can hand over to you that is very user friendly for the teachers. Great, thank you. What are, what, what's happening to the Johns and the Pimps? I remember, Melissa, I think about 10 years ago, we were at UNR, and you were on this panel with the police chief, I believe. And I don't know if I'm making this up, but I thought there, was, there were going to be billboards, their name, possibly their phone number, <laughs> their profession, and, you know, getting... Yeah, well, the short answer to the long question is not enough, right? Uh, there needs to be accountability for the contribution that the, uh, the buyers, remember our, our market, remember the, exist, the market does not exist without the buyer, right? So not enough. And uh, I wish there could be more, but there are often mm -hmm. issues around the constraints of the information that's allowed to be released. As a little evidence of grace, I will say, I, in the last year, I have seen more traffickers get arrested for trafficking of minors than I have in the previous eight. And so we're starting to see some movement, but the girls, because of fear and shame, still uh, aren't testifying or don't show up to court. And so we're seeing them get off. But we're actually seeing charges now, which is really incredible. Do you have anything that you want to add, Holland? Yeah. I know, I know. This is really... <laughs> Her heart. I will tell you the funnest thing I saw was today. It's not local, but it's in Nebraska. Oh, I'm so excited seeing this. I was talking to, she's a former FBI agent. She now works for the AG in Nebraska, and she was sharing what one of the local smaller community police departments was doing. They did a big surveillance, uh, a prostitution sting in a hotel, and so they got the hotel, gave them the camera footage of the supposed buyers. These aren't even confirmed. The PD posted all the photos of the guys on their Facebook page. It's been shared 1,500 times so far as of earlier today. 1,501. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, if you, this is about a prostitution sting. If you guys can identify these guys, if you guys want to come up, you know, it says innocent until proven guilty, you know, cover your butts, you know, because you're going to slander these guys. But it, I mean, they were basically saying, this is not safe 
to buy sex in our community anymore by making this public position. And all the studies on sex buyers show they're looking for two things to stop buying sex. Two deterrents. One is the perception of getting caught, just the fear of getting caught. And the second is getting caught. So the Facebook thing is the number one deterrent, just the perception, and that will do it. So I tagged RPD in the sheriff's office and said we'd happily share any posts they want to make. Yeah. And we need to. There's a question here. Yeah, my question is um, going back to the schools and mandated reporters. So is everybody on staff a mandated reporter? So yes. everybody. everybody. Lunch lady, everybody. Okay, everybody. so if there's rumors floating around, should those people report it? Absolutely yes. they should, because it's information, if it's reasonable that it could be going on, they should be reporting it, bottom line. Uh, okay, and I just have to say, I'm really pissed off with our school district. I'll say with child abuse, it doesn't have to be confirmed, it's suspicion. Yeah. But with trafficking, for some reason, we have to feel like it's confirmed before we report, mm -hmm. instead of just suspicion. Yeah, and that's the thing, you know, with, uh, with adult cases, you actually, there's a lot of things that you have to prove. So if I went and I said, hey, I was trafficked, I would have to say, they would ask me questions. If it's a kid, none of that's necessary. There's no, I mean, they'll be, you could probably answer that better, but no force, fraud, or coercion is necessary to prove in order uh, for that, to, that case to move forward. Well, especially with the juvenile. It, we really work on the issue of uh, suspicion. It has to have to, with the juvenile, all it has to be is reasonable evidence for the crime to have occurred. And it doesn't have to be forced fraud or coercion uh, for a juvenile. The act in itself, even if the juvenile so-called willingly wanted to do that, which never is the case when you really back it up to where it is, you do not have to prove forced fraud or coercion with a juvenile. So here's even, let me simplify it even more. Let the police and the prosecutors deal with proving the case. Just roll on your suspicion, okay? That's enough. Keep it at the level of your suspicion, mm -hmm. and you're going to do the safest thing that you can possibly do in the interest of that child. Forget about proving the case and building the evidence. Go on your suspicion. Well, let me make sure I understand your question. Is CPS too overwhelmed to deal with it? Oh. It's overwhelmed. And I also heard that five, cops are only, police are only able to respond to 5%. Are they too overwhelmed to well, respond? No, don't, don't misunderstand what I said about the 5%. The 5% in terms of the uh, resources, the tools within the police department are you, is... Uh, generally able to solve a crime just off of those resources. And the point that I was making is that 95% of the information that is needed to solve a crime is out within the community. That's why you go talk to witnesses, get information, collect evidence, uh, et cetera. So that's the only point I was making with regard to the 95-5%, not in terms of the level of being overwhelmed or incapable of dealing with the problem, because in my you know, professional opinion, both from a pragmatic and a practitioner level, is you always have enough time, you always have enough resources to deal with this problem. Mm -hmm. There are no excuses. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you right now, let me say it really clearly. There are no excuses for CPS, for the police department, for the schools, for the hospitals, 
for anyone to not give the time, resources, and effort to this problem. It, period. End of story. Okay, we're going to need to make this the last question. We'd really like to be respectful of everyone's time if you want to stick around afterwards and converse, but we're going to have to formally bring it to a closure. Please. This is not so much a question. I just wanted to make everyone aware. Sorry, it's really loud. That prostitution is not legal in Washoe County, which includes all of Reno. Yeah. It is not legal. So don't ever assume that any girls or anybody that is out there on the street are doing it of their free will or as a business or anything. It, it's not legal. And um, I, I would just always go on the assumption that they're there against their will. Thank you for making that point. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah, very much. There are only select counties in the state of Nevada, by the way, which is to, with, uh, where it's legal. It is not legal across the board in the state of Nevada. Thank you for making that very necessary point. Okay, everyone, I really want to again thank the team members here that have just been a part of this. Thank you very much to each and every one of them. It's been a real pleasure to present and to be with everyone. And thank you, because by being here, you have made the statement that this does matter and that the buck stopped with you, with what you see and what you're willing to do about this problem. So thank you, and a round of applause for yourself, for being intolerant of this problem and being a part of the solution. Thank you, everyone. Have a wonderful evening.